Reflections on William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 1. We're going to be looking at two Shakespeare plays, Julius Caesar and Troilus and Cressida, and they are not the most elevating of his plays. It's a kind of Shakespeare's dark period. This is particularly true of Troilus and Cressida but to some extent true of uh, Julius Caesar as well. <clears throat> and the question would be, why do we need to go over these sorts of things? Why do we need to uh, take a closer look at the dark side, which these plays do? And I think it is because we, are, we constantly need to be reminded and further informed about what it is that uh, will take us out of the worthy story into the into the dubious plots. We have been using the the cultural anthropology of Rene Girard because I think it's uh, is extremely important and is destined to become ever so much more important uh, in the near future for understanding where we are historically. But his language, his uh, probings are subtle and complicated, and uh, so on and so forth. And if I were either um, less scrupulous or more imaginative, uh, I would uh, I would translate his language into my own. But I, I but but I don't find I, I think it would be intellectually dishonest to do that. So I keep referring back to his work. I want to start with a quote from Rene Girard as a kind of overview. We must, he says place everything in the much larger context of a society that for centuries has been able at first to abate and then to halt altogether the production of myth and ritual or the sacred transfiguration of violence. In other words, myth and ritual from Girard's perspective is simply the transfiguration of violence. He goes on to say, a society that replaces myth by an awareness of persecution is a society in the process of desacralization. For Girard, sacralization means uh, something that disguises violence, something that uh, is the sacred transfiguration of violence. A desacralized society, from Girard's point of view, is one which... uh, can no longer believe in sacred violence, can no longer believe in holy wars, can no longer believe in righteous violence. To the extent that that's true, we have become a desacralized society. And to the extent that we can still believe in holy wars, righteous violence, and uh, sacred violence, we are, uh, we have yet to extricate ourselves from the justifying mythology. So then he goes on. I realize this is a little complicated, but bear with me a second. Then he goes on. He says, We should be fully aware, for example, that the medieval text of persecution, like anti-Semitic texts, records of the Inquisition, or witch trials, even if they still contain elements that are very close to mythology, in that the perspective they employ remains definable by a type of distortion close to that of myth, 
they can nevertheless be situated in an intermediary zone between mythology and the more radical demythification of which we ourselves are now capable. These texts, meaning the anti-Semitic text of the of Jewish persecutions and the text of the Inquisition, records of the Inquisition and uh, records of witch trials, these texts are much easier to decipher than myths because the transfiguration of the victim is much less powerful and complete than it is in myth. Now, what he's saying is, imagine three stages. The first is myth, <clears throat> in which we do not even recognize the, perhaps not even the existence of violence. Everything has been, the euphemisms, the mythological euphemisms are all in place, and the ritual reenactments are, have all been tidied up. And we don't recognize that the, dark, the black hole and at the core of that phenomenon is a, vac is a victimization. As we extricate ourselves from the spell, as we become less and less uh, uh, seduced by the mythological logic, we, be we become capable of seeing uh, these episodes as being actual persecutions. In other words, the mythology begins to wear thin so that when we get the text, and Gerard uses one from the uh, medieval persecution of the Jews in one of his books, we get these texts, they read in many respects like myths. They have their, they, it's a mythological construct, except that we don't agree with We We know immediately what's going on. We see what's happening. We see that underneath all of those highfalutin words, there's a bloodletting going on. And the justification doesn't convince us. And Gerard says, if we get better at seeing the human predicament, we will one day be able to go back and read the myths with the same kind of insight. So that we start with the medieval texts of persecutions, which are worn out myths that disclose their victimization episodes and we work our way back into the intact myths and, and are able finally to decode them. He's saying, a society that replaces myth by an awareness of persecution is a society in the process of desacralization. That is to say, we begin to recognize that what really happened there was not that fairy tale that the myth passes on to us, but something much grimmer than that. But of course, it's not the journey from myth to recognizing the the, the sacrificial episode for what it is to uh, to a, a, a place where we begin to disenchant ourselves altogether with that kind of logic is not a smooth and inevitable one. The sacrificial logic continues to operate in our world, as you know very well, and it is stunningly adaptable to whatever political, social, religious paradigm happens to be extant at the moment that it reasserts itself. Now Jung, the thing I always say so often about Carl Jung, he said, if the wave of indignation sweeps your country, you will probably find yourself among the sweeping. Uh, these, these things come up and take hold of us, and we find ourselves drawn into them. We find ourselves joining the chorus, clamoring for the righteous violence. In our time, the rehabilitations of sacred violence and the reaffirmation of sacrificial, sacrificial logic have been justified largely by ideology, ethnic, nationalist, or internationalist ideology. 
Uh, Rene Girard has a comment about ideologies in one of his discussions. He says, the virulent ideologies that have succeeded and battled with one another throughout the 20th century are founded on a kind of monstrous but ineffective rationalization of the victimage mechanism. Monstrous in the sense that they have, they have created untold numbers of victims, Stalin, Hitler, etc., Mao. Uh, but they have been ineffective and have had to be uh, enforced by police states, because which, which indicates that the mythology is simply not compelling. And so raw force is having to be used. Well, Julius Caesar is a story about a particular, about an episode, a political episode in the first century BC in Rome, retold the fir- in, in the, uh, at the beginning of the 17th century by Shakespeare, uh, but it's one in which the political paradigm, the ideology, if you will, is Roman republicanism. And uh, as it typically does, the sacrificial logic uh, chooses to deploy rather than to, to displace the existing system of social rationalization. And in this case, it's Roman republicanism. And so what we can watch in this play is how something as as rationally intelligible and noble as Roman republicanism, that is to say we're going to run our political affairs in a more representative way with senators, etc., etc., how a intellectually rational uh, political system is infected by the sacrificial logic and how its most noble uh, members, in this case Brutus, and its most unscrupulous ones, like uh, Caius Ligarius, get caught up with varying degrees of effort on the part of the sacrificial logic in this event, and how it finally is uh, uh, collapses of its own weight and leads to a general crisis of violence. Now, what Shakespeare was concerned with at this point in his career, often, and I think there's an interesting link between Brutus and Hamlet, by the way. Shakespeare is fascinated in the later plays by the inner struggle of those being seduced by the sacrificial logic, even though they already recognize at some level of awareness the moral and spiritual vulgarity of its imperative and the inherent deceit of its mythological euphemisms. That's true of both Hamlet and Brutus. In that respect, these plays should be of keen interest to us because we are all in the same position as the various Shakespearean protagonists in these plays. We live in a social environment animated by mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry and therefore still returning periodically to sacrificial episodes, demanding a mythological uh, explanation. And so we find ourselves in this uncomfortable position, periodically, of feeling two ways towards what's going on, feeling some kind of righteous anger, but knowing that its logic uh, can't be pursued very far before we get into a quagmire. And, and, and then having this other sense that we can't go down that road. Uh, so groping for some kind of uh, 
legitimizing logic for what's actually going on. So I think the I think the plays are helpful, and they and Julius Caesar particularly will will um, help us see that sort of the stages of the infection. I said this the ideal the the ideological background of the play is is a Republican form of government, small r, coming from the word res publica, meaning the thing of the people. And one could argue that the not exactly the chief protagonist of this play, but the the uh, ultimately the central force of this play is the mob. And <clears throat> we don't have to go any further really than scene one to see that because of, of, of act one. Because as so often Shakespeare takes advantage of scene one, act one, or scene two, act one sometimes, uh, to, to let us know what's really going on. And in this case, he uses both of those to let us know. But, the, but scene one, act one, has a, alludes immediately to the problem of the crowd. And over and over, the play will return to that problem. Uh, we have Flavius and Marullus, who are tribunes, coming upon the crowds in the streets, and they have not gone to work that morning. And not only have they not gone to work, they are not dressed in their work clothes. And they want to know what's going on. Flavius says, Hence, home, you idle creatures, get you home. Is this a holiday? What? Know you not being mechanical, which is to say being of the working class? You ought not walk upon a laboring day without the sign of your profession? So each guild, you see, had an insignia. And they wore it uh, in their in their workaday world. The very first opening lines of the play say, "Look at this. We have a crowd not going to their job, not wearing their insignias. You can't tell one from another. You can't tell which one's which." And right away, Flavius is saying, "Hey, who are you? Where are you going? I can't. We in 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 the order that we've accustomed ourselves to." We know who you are. Everybody has their place. Now you will say, oh, I see. What Gill's going to do is tell us that this is Girard's crisis of distinction. Well, exactly. But I have to tell you, this is where Girard learned it. <laughs> it's not as though I'm using Girard to impressing Girard on Shakespeare. He learned it from Shakespeare. Shakespeare's the one who saw it first. This is the crisis. People suddenly are not behaving as... In there, they're not sticking to their category, and uh, what's and so Flavius is is uh, concerned. He turns to one of them, speak. What trade art thou? Why, sir, a carpenter. Where is thy leathern apron and thy rule? What dost thou with thy best apparel on? So, no leathern apron, no rule, and and you're all dressed up. What's going on here? He turns to another, you, sir, what trade are you? And this is where Shakespeare starts to have some fun. What trade are you? Truly, sir, in respect of a fine workman, I am but, as you would say, a cobbler. A cobbler. Now, this is a pun, because a cobbler is a bungler and a mender of shoes. And, of course, Marullus 
assumes he means a bungler. <laughs> he says, I'm a cobbler. And Marula says, but what trade art thou? Answer me directly. I know you're a bungler. He said. <clears throat> and the cobbler says, a trade, sir, that I hope I may use with a safe conscience, which is, sir, a mender of bad souls. Now, S-O-L-E-S, but the audience doesn't know that. They don't have the text. <clears throat> they just have the sound of the words. And this, I think, this cobbler is, for the time being, Shakespeare talking. I think this is Shakespeare signing his name to the play. Who are you? I'm a cobbler. What are you doing here? Mending bad souls. Flavius says, What trade, thou knave? You, thou naughty knave, what trade? And the cobbler says, Nay, I beseech you, sir, be not out with me, yet if you be out, the pun here is if you're worn out, if you be out, sir, I can mend you. Now, meaning, I can mend your shoes. You have worn out shoes, I can mend your shoes. The other thing is, I'm the playwright. Don't get so cocky because I'll just change your line. You see that? <laughs> if you be out with me, I can mend you. Marula says, What meanest thou by that? Mend me, thou saucy fellow. Why, sir, cobble you. Thou art a cobbler, art thou? And the cobbler says, and this I think is Shakespeare, Truly, sir, all that I live by is with the all. And again, the, the word is A-W-L, which is the tool that the cobbler uses to, to mend shoes. Uh, but the pun is on A-L-L. All that I live by is with the all. I meddle with no tradesmen's matters, nor women's matters, but with all, with, with A-W-L, but with all, I am indeed, sir, a surgeon to old shoes. And I think Shakespeare is talking about the pen in his hand, the all. He is the surgeon to old shoes. Almost every one of Shakespeare's plays is based very profoundly on an existing story, an old story. And this one's based on Plutarch. So he says, I am with, with all. I am indeed, sir, a surgeon to old shoes. When they are in great danger, I recover them. As proper men as ever trod upon neat's leather have gone upon my handiwork, meaning, I think, the stage. Flavius says, why dost thou lead these men about the streets? And the cobbler says, You see, why are you leading? Notice that, leading these men about. And the cobbler says, Truly, sir, to wear out their, their shoes to get myself more work. <laughs> now, doesn't that sound like the playwright? What are you doing here? Well, this is, a, this is, a, this is how I make my living. Uh, but indeed, sir, we, and then it changes, you see. Now he's talking, that's not Shakespeare anymore. But indeed, sir, we make holiday to see Caesar and to rejoice in his triumph, and Marullus is outraged. You blocks, you stones, you worse than senseless things. Oh, you hard hearts, you cruel men of Rome, knew you not Pompey? See, Caesar returning from killing the, uh, from being victorious over the sons of Pompey. Knew you not Pompey? Many a time and oft have you climbed up to walls and battlements, to towers and windows, yea, to chimney tops, you, your infants in your arms, and there have sat the live long day with patient expectation to see great Pompey pass the streets of Rome. 
and when you saw his chariot but appear, have you not made an universal shout that Tiber trembled underneath her banks to hear the replication of your sounds made in her concave shore? In other words, the mob is utterly fickle. They, they used to come out for the same kind of thing when Pompey came in, and now Pompey's victor is coming in, Pompey's killer is coming in, and they're doing the same thing. <clears throat> now, Shakespeare did not have a high expectation of what crowds do. We just have to say that. Now, you can accuse Shakespeare of, being, uh, of, of lacking certain democratic uh, uh, sympathies if you want to, but he simply did not have a very high expectation of what crowds are capable of. And Marullus is saying that. Here you are again. And we'll see it over and over in this play. And then he goes on. So he says, didn't you do this when Pompey came in? And now he says, and do you now put on your best attire? And do you now call out a holiday? And do you now strew flowers in his way that comes in triumph over Pompey's blood? Be gone. Run to your houses, fall upon your knees, pray to the gods to intermit the plague that needs must light on this ingratitude. Well, it's the crisis of distinctions. It's a, it, one of the symptoms of the crisis of distinctions is, a, is, the, is the increased suggestibility of the mob. In other words, it's, it, all it takes is one shout, you know, one shout of fire in a crowded theater kind of thing. All it takes is one shout or one twist in the, in the, in the kaleidoscope of social arrangements, and suddenly the mob is going in an entirely different direction. Nobody could have predicted it. It's very uh, fluid and, and uh, volatile, and that's a symptom of the social crisis. The next scene goes to the top of the social order with Caesar, being Caesar, which is to say his word is authority. First of all, there's a flourish of trumpet music, right? Now we know who we're, now we're in a different arena. Calpurnia, stand you directly in Antonius's way when he doth run his course. Antonius, see this formal uh, use of the name. Antony says, Caesar, my lord, Forget not in your speed, Antonius, to touch Calpurnia, for our elders say the baron touch it in this holy chase, shake off their sterile curse. And Antony says, I shall remember when Caesar says, when Caesar say, do this, it is performed. And Caesar says, set on and leave no ceremony out. Now this is, all, this is a complicated thing. This is the feast of uh, uh, Lupercalia, which is an ancient Roman fertility ritual, happened uh, on February 15th. Uh, and it consisted of sacrificing goats, uh, making uh, goat skin into strips, and the goat, of course, was the pan figure, the fertility figure. And then naked or almost naked men would run through a course, and they would, and uh, women who wanted to become pregnant or were barren and wanted to become fruitful, would stand in line and the, and as these men would go around, they would swing these these uh, straps and if anybody was touched by it, it would cure the sterility. At least that was what was taught. For absolutely no reason, Shakespeare puts this in here, it's not in, it's not in uh, Plutarch. And it is the, it's what in, it's, it's what's in so many of the, 
Shakespearean play. It's the triangle. Caesar says, I want, I want Calpurnia over here, and I want Antony over here. That makes a nice triangle. And I want Antony to touch Calpurnia so she will, be, she will no longer be sterile. I just mention in passing that it's... I, I, think, I think Shakespeare finds it irresistible. He needs to make a mention of it, even if he's not going to do anything with it. He shows that we overcome the sterility by, con by configuring somehow the triangle. But the other thing about this is Caesar says, leave no ceremony out. Caesar is the master choreographer, and particularly when it comes to the crowd. The, uh, Caesar, who claims, as all political leaders always claim, often claim, uh, to be ahead, out ahead of the mob, it's a claim that rests almost entirely on his capacity to, to uh, choreograph the mob and to make sure that he's just out in front of where the choreography is going. And uh, the, the, the subtlety of that in this play is just masterful. Leave no ceremony... We'll see that in a second. Leave no ceremony <coughs> out. And now he's just arranging the triangle so that, so that Calpurnia will no longer be barren. The soothsayer says, Caesar, beware the Ides of March. And Caesar questions him and uh, decides that he's just a dreamer and walks on. And left on stage are Brutus and Cassius. And now we see the first seduction scene. In the comedies and sometimes the tragedies, there are these seduction scenes that are seduction scenes in a romantic genre. And this is a seduction scene in a political genre. But it's just exactly the same thing, exact same pattern. Cassius and Brutus. Cassius is the source of mimetic contagion in this play, the source of the one who sows the contagion. He's the pander of the piece. And Brutus is, the, is noble Brutus. And Cassius says to Brutus, is, this is the, the seduction of Brutus by Cassius. Cassius says, tell me, good Brutus, can you see your face? Which is a weighty line. And Brutus says, No, Cassius, for the eyes see not itself, but by reflection by some other things. And Cassius says, It is very much lamented, Brutus, that you have no such mirrors as will turn your hidden worthiness into your eye, that you might see your shadow. The seducer and the seduced one uh, aren't as distinct as one would think. Uh, in seductions, there is a kind of willingness on the part of the seduced one, and a kind of winking back and forth goes on. And uh, Brutus does a little of it here. He says, Into what dangers would you lead me, Cassius, that you would have me seek into myself for that which is not in me? It's not in me, Cassius. So what are, where are you leading me? He didn't say, Stop leading me. I'm going, uh, Goodbye, I'm leaving. He says, where are you leading me? And notice what that, that's coy. You see, what that does is that leaves him uh, the innocent one in the seduction. And all of us want to be the innocent one. The morning after, we all want to be, we all want to be able to say, oh, I shouldn't have listened to you. <laughs> you see, that's it. That's the, that's the ploy. Of, and, and, and Brutus is playing that right now. And Cassius says, since you know you cannot see yourself so well as by reflection, I, 
your glass, meaning your mirror, I, your glass, will modestly discover to yourself that of yourself which you yet know not of. Now this is, this is classic mimesis. He is saying, I want you to just look at me for a while and something will happen in you. I'm, I'm going to show you my the snake pit of my heart and I'm going to watch it replicate itself in yours. In a colloquy between uh, uh, René Girard and um, uh, Jean-Miguel Orgulian, the French psychiatrist, they talk about uh, Freudian things and, and Freud was very interested as many as, as psychiatrists of his day in hypnosis and so on. And Girard says, the hypnosis technique most often involves making the subject stare at a shining object and asking him to concentrate his attention on this object. And Orgulian says, the techniques of hypnosis simply try to reproduce as faithfully as possible the condition of the subject's fixation on the model, the conditions that allow the desire of the subject to be modeled on the desire of the other. The theater of Shakespeare offers the spectacle of mimesis at work in the course of a more elaborate set of circumstances. That's a little complicated, but what Cassius is doing is saying, you look here, just watch me. Leave everything out for a second. Watch this. I'm going to unpack my heart right before your attentive gaze, and you're going to find some of those creepy, crawly things that I unpack are in you after all, and you didn't think they were. Trumpets, a flourish of trumpets outside. See, Hail to Caesar. So what's going on outside is Caesar is ascending in, uh, in the public eye. And what's going on inside is the envy, and the envy of Cassius. And he's, he's playing on Brutus's Republican sentiments. And Brutus says... What means this shouting? I do fear the people choose Caesar for their king. Now, Cassius is a master, because he's a creation of Shakespeare, he is a master manipulator. And so he picks up on the word fear. Brutus says, I fear that this means they might choose Caesar for a king. Cassius says, ah, do you fear it? Then must I think you would not have it so. And Brutus says, I would not, Cassius, yet I love him well. I love the name of honor more than I fear death. And Cassius, again, picks up on the word. Honor? Oh, you want to talk honor? He's like, he's like, a, he's like a traveling salesman, you know, that was, that, that, or door-to-door salesman comes in and sees a, a, a Monet reproduction on your wall and says, oh, I love the Impressionist. I, you know, it's, whatever, you, whatever you're talking, he'll talk it, you know. So he says, oh, you want to talk honor? Let's talk honor. So Brutus says, I love the name of honor more than I fear death. And Cassius says, well, honor is the subject of my story. I cannot tell what you and other men think of this life, but for my single self I had as lief not be as live to be in awe of such a thing as I myself. In other words, <coughs> Caesar's no better than I am. And he's about to explain why it is that Caesar is no better than he is. Let me uh, remind you of uh, Edmund in Lear. Edmund, who was the bastard son of Gloucester, said, I'm, no, I'm not any less than than my legitimate son, uh, brother Edgar. I'm not any less than Edgar just because I'm a, I was born without the piece of paper and he was born with it. I mean, I, and it took, it, it, it took 
about two minutes for that logic to become, to, to generate to the place where he says, therefore, Edgar, I must have your land. <laughs> In other words, I'm not less, I'm equal. And since I'm equal, I'm superior. <laughs> In exactly the same way, Cassius says, says I, I, I'm no less than Caesar. And then he says, I was born as free as Caesar, so were you. We both have fed as well, and we both, and we can both endure the winter's cold as well as he. See, all this comparison. And then he tells a little story about how uh, he and Caesar once had a, a race in, across the Tiber. And ha before they got to the other side, Caesar uh, ran out of energy, couldn't swim anymore, was about to sink, and Cassius had to pull him out of the river. And Cassius says, and this man is now become a god, and Cassius is a wretched creature and must bend his body if Caesar carelessly but not on him. And then he talks, tells about how Caesar had a fever in Spain. And when the fit was on him, I did mark that he did shake. Tis true, this god did shake and cried, give me some drink, Titanius, as a sick girl. Ye gods, it doth amaze me a man of such feeble temper should so get the start of the majestic world and bear the palm alone. So see? And he's just talking about physical strength, physical stamina. And he said, I have more than Caesar has. Therefore, I'm equal to Caesar. And there's another shout outside, outside the crowd's having no problem with Caesar whatsoever because Caesar is masterfully choreographing the crowd. I mean, Caesar is the first... Uh, the, the first of the uh, media politicians in the sense of being able to completely manipulate the crowd. But Cassius is manipulating Brutus. And now that he's raised questions about Caesar, now he's going to try to infect Brutus with envy. Brutus and Caesar, he's, he, he rolls these two names off his tongue, you see. Brutus and Caesar. What should be in that Caesar? Why should that name be sounded more than yours? Now, you see, Caesar had become, and still is to this day in many respects, Caesar had become the generic name of political prominence. It was the Xerox of the day. It was the patented name. You see what I mean? Uh, it got there first with the most. And uh, everything else had to then relate to Caesar. You know, how do you stand with regard to that image of ultimate authority and power? But, it, but now Cassius is saying, no, look here, Brutus, Caesar? I don't know. Why should it be Caesar? Why, it, why couldn't it be Brutus? Write them together, he says. Write them together. Yours is as fair a name. Sound them. It doth become the mouth as well. Weigh them. It is as heavy. Conjure with them. Brutus will start a spirit as soon as Caesar. And uh, Brutus, uh, with a kind of a wink, says, What would you work me to? I have some aim. How I have thought of this and of these times I shall recount hereafter. It's a little wink. Oh, I, he said, I get the drift. We'll talk about it later. And Cassius says, I am glad that my weak words have struck but this much show of fire from Brutus. 
and the, 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 the verb and the object here, to strike fire is like flint and steel. And I think that's important for a passage that comes in a few minutes. I'm going to uh, skip to later, in, a little bit later in the, uh, in, in the play, just to pick up on this seduction of Brutus. Cassius is on stage alone, and he says, I will this night in several hands, in at his windows throw, as if they came from several citizens, writings all tending to the great opinion that Rome holds of his name, wherein, obscurely, Caesar's ambition shall be glanced at. Now, wherein, obscurely, Caesar's ambition shall be glanced at is a it has two meanings. One is it will be obliquely referred to. But Shakespeare, who so often focuses on the eye of envy, uh, is using, I think, glanced at in the visual sense, too, in that he will get Brutus to look out of the corner of his eye, as, as we've talked about here, at Caesar as his rival. Caesar comes on stage... Uh, Cassius and Brutus are there, and Caesar's talking to his uh, his uh, friend Mark Antony, and he's pointing to Cassius. Let me have men about me that are fat, sleek-hearted men, and such as sleep a nights. Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look; he thinks too much. Such men are dangerous. Now, here's what he says about Cassius: he reads too much. He is a great observer, and he looks quite through the deeds of men. Uh, what's that sound like? He reads too much, he is a great observer, and he looks quite through the deeds of men. I would say, so far, so good. So far, so good. I would say that sounds like William Shakespeare to me. But then he said, He loves no plays as thou dost, Anthony. He hears no music. Seldom he smiles, and smiles in such a sort as if he mocked himself and scorned his spirit that could be moved to smile at anything. Such men as he be never at heart's ease whilst they behold a greater than themselves. And therefore they are very dangerous. Well, this is the story of Cassius. He has extricated himself from the myth, loves no plays. Shakespeare, I, I think at this point in his career, is having some serious misgivings about his career. I really believe that. I think he hits bottom with Troilus and Cressida. Because uh, he sells tickets to the theater by, by getting the crowd to whoop and holler uh, in the way that he doesn't approve of, in a sense. He hear, he loves no plays, as thou dost, Anthony. He hears no music. Now, the only music that's been in this play so far are the trumpets. What Caesar's complaining about is that Cassius is not listening to the Caesar soundtrack, right? He's not worrying about about his his uh, his uh, aesthetic development, about whether or not he's a music lover. What well, concerns Caesar is he's not listening to the soundtrack that goes with the Caesar uh, imperial order. He's not listening to the trumpet flourishes. 
That's the music he's not listening to. Remember the third priest in Eliot's Murder in Cathedral said, For who knows the end of good or evil until the grinders cease and the door shall be shut in the street and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. This is recognition of the role of the soundtrack in the, in the mythology. In other words, Caesar is saying, this, <clears throat> Caesar, to put it in contemporary context, he is saying, the problem with Cassius is that he's not listening to America the Beautiful or Johnny Comes Marching Home Again. He's listening to rap music. That's the problem, see? Well, rap music is just a sacrificial tune, you know what I mean? So he, he, he's, he's listening to the tom-tom at one level of consciousness or another. But Caesar's problem with him is he's not listening to the trumpet flourishes. Because the people who do, they're lining the streets out there, doing what they're supposed to do, throwing their hats in the air. That's what they're supposed to do. But here's a guy that doesn't do it. But he never gets out of it, see? He, he extricates himself from it only to the extent that he sees that all of Caesar's distinctions are arbitrary. And at that point, he becomes a rival with Caesar. Such men as he be never at heart's ease whilst they behold a greater than themselves. And at the end of this little uh, appearance by Caesar, Caesar doesn't make much in the way of an appearance in this play. It's, uh, it has his name as its title. We'll talk about that later. But He's talking to Anthony. He says, I'd rather tell thee what is to be feared than what I fear. In other words, Caesar doesn't fear, but I'm talking about Cassius. He's, I'm just telling you what is to be feared rather than uh, what I fear. For always, I am Caesar. In other words, godlike. Don't don't worry about. It. I don't fear anything. The next line: Come on my right hand, for this ear is deaf, and tell me truly what thou thinkest of him. So the next line after, <clears throat> for always I am Caesar, shows mortal frailties. Caesar leaves. Casca comes. And Casca. Uh, tells us about the um, <clears throat> seduction of the crowd by Caesar. Here's how Casca reports it. I saw Mark Anthony offer him a crown, yet t'was not a crown neither, t'was one of these coronets. And, as I told you, he put it by once. For all that, to my thinking, he would have fain ha he would fain have had it. Then he offered him it again. Then he put it by again. But to my thinking, he was very loath to lay his fingers off it. And then he offered it the third time. He put it the third time by, and still, as he refused it, the rabblement hooted. Now, does this, and I'll go on in a second, but does this sound like it's being choreographed? His, his friend and political ally is making this gesture of offering him the coronet three times, and each time with, with a great uh, sweeping gesture of humility, refusing it, and each time the, the crowd whooping it up a little bit more, the rabblement hooted. The rabblement hooted 
and clapped their cropped hands and threw up their sweaty nightcaps and uttered such a deal of stinking breath because Caesar refused the crown that it had almost choked Caesar, for he swooned and fell down at it. And for my own part, I durst not laugh for fear of opening my lips and receiving the bad air, the foul breath of the crowd. And they, well, it says two things. It says Caesar is a master at manipulating the crowd. And this, uh, this disgust at what the crowd will do if you, if you manipulate them the right way. But Cassius picks up on the fact that Caesar fainted. Did Caesar swoon? And Casca said, yes, he foamed at the mouth and was speechless. Caesar was, was an epileptic. And this is an epileptic fit. And Brutus says, it is the falling sickness. And Cassius says, no, no, you, you have it wrong. We have the falling sickness. Because when he walks by, weakling though he is, we bow and scrape. So Casca, who's, who, who didn't quite get that, Casca's a poor simple-minded guy. Casca says, I know not what you mean by that, but I am sure Caesar fell down. If the tag-rag people did not clap him and hiss him according as he pleased and displeased them, as they used to do the players in the theater, I am no true man. See, that's Shakespeare mocking himself. They do it in the theater. This is just what they do in the theater. Casca says, When he came to himself again, he said, if he had done or said anything amiss, he desired their worships to think it was his infirmity. Three or four wenches where I stood cried, Alas, good soul, and forgave him with all their hearts, but there's not heed to be taken of them. If Caesar had stabbed their mothers, they would have done no less. <laughs> you see, this is a crowd possessed. He's completely in control of them. He can, he can have an epileptic fit right in the middle of it, stand up with the wave of a hand, walk away, and nothing is disturbed. And then the question comes up. Now, you see, we just see how volatile the mob is. And suddenly, completely at the other end of the social spectrum, Cassius says, did Cicero say anything? Now this is, those present at the, at the, at, at the, at the center of the mimetic vortex, you know, where, where it's most difficult to be independent. See? And Cassius has this sense of thing, or Caesar does, I mean uh, Shakespeare does. Cassius says, was Cicero there? Did Cicero say anything? And Casca says, ah, he spoke Greek, which is fun. Cicero is the intellectual. Cicero is the philosopher, the, 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 the one that's above it all, the senator. Ah, he spoke Greek, the aristocrat. Cassius says, to what effect? And Casca says, I don't understand Greek. <laughs> he says, it's all Greek to me. That's, uh, actually, in Plutarch, there's an implication that Casca understood Greek, but Shakespeare is not having to be that way. He said, it was all Greek to me. But Casca goes on. But those that understood him smiled at one another and shook their heads. But for my own part, it was Greek to me. I could tell you more. So let me just stop there. Cicero's not taken in by it, clearly. He speaks Greek. There are a few other of his fellow intellectuals in the crowd. They look at one another. They shake their heads. They think, boy, oh boy, he's done it again. How often did members of the press corps do that during Ronald Reagan's administration? 
I hate, I don't want to be partisan here, but how often do members of the press corps look at one another and shake their heads and say, my gosh, we came out here to expose something and we just got wrapped around his finger. See? And this is what Cicero's done. He's, he speaks in Greek and shakes his head. They chuckle. And then Koska says, unless we think, if we think it's too delicate, he says, I could tell you more news, too. Marullus and Flavius, for pulling scarfs off Caesar's images, were put to silence. Those were the two uh, triumvirs that began the play, and they went out to take the to take the festive wrappings off Caesar's statue because they thought things were getting out of hand, and they were put to silence. Again, another ind- indication that, C- that Caesar is completely choreographing this thing, and uh, he may be in public refusing the crown, but woe to those people out there who might be interfering with his, uh, with his manipulation of the crowd's approval. See? And then we get Casca and Cicero, two extremely unlikely characters. Casca's very uh, suggestible, and Cicero is quite independent. And Casca if this is the scene, there's so many of them in Shakespeare where there's, there are these omens and portents. The weather's behaving strangely and spirits are moving in the streets and the owls are croaking during the, or, or, uh, uh, around during the day and so on. Everything's turned upside down. And mostly it's, a, it's thunder and lightning. And Cicero greets Casca and says, Why are you breathless and why stare you so? And Casca are you not moved when all the sway of earth shakes like a thing unfirm, says Casca? Everything's falling apart. And these are all, these scenes, these uh, scenes of violent weather, so often in Shakespeare where he wants to show what's happening in the social order. This is not a comment on the, on the weather, obviously. Casca says, I have seen the ambition ocean swell and rage and foam to be exalted with the threatened, threatening clouds. Now, just stop and peruse that metaphor for a second. I have seen the ambitious ocean, the, the, the mob, swell and rage and foam to be exalted with the threatening clouds. In other words, to be, to be jealous of the threatening clouds and to try to reach their height. just means everything's coming again. Shakespeare uses the same thing in, in Othello when he says you can't tell the difference between the sky and the sea anymore. It's all one. And Cicero says, why, saw you anything more wonderful? Casca's panicked by all this. And Cicero thinks it's a marvelous uh, lightning storm. How interesting. And Casca says, a common slave, you know him well by sight, held up his left hand which did flame and burn like twenty torches joined, and yet his hand not sensible of fire remained unscorched. That is just one little touch, but it's so Shakespearean. The common slave held up his sinister hand, left hand is, the word sinister comes from the word for left hand, held up his sinister hand, in a fist no doubt, which did flame and burn like twenty torches joined. 
and yet his hand, not sensible of fire, remained unscorched. This is when the fist shoots up into the air, the person who does it is absolutely unaware of his part in the conflagration. This is an interesting image of of this crisis. And of course he's talking about the mob, but it applies just as well to the conspirators that that are about to join against Caesar. And uh, so Tosca says, uh, when these prodigies do so conjointly meet, let not men say these are their reasons, they are natural, for I believe they are portentous things. He talks about all that's going on. It's strange signs, you see. And Cicero says, indeed, it is a strange disposed time, but men may construe things after their fashion, clean from the purpose of the things themselves. Yes, he says, it's strange. But, you know, it's easy, it's easy to interpret these things the wrong way. Now, Casca and Cicero have, uh, have uh, contemporary uh, intellectual heirs. Casca's uh, uh, intellectual heirs are the, are the uh, apocalyptic fundamentalist who, who find the signs of the approaching uh, apocalypse in everything. See, whatever the contemporary... Uh, scene is they, they, there will be some indication that they will connect with some biblical passage and say, oh, this is, this is a very dangerous time. So, and Cicero's intellectual heirs are the, are the um, Enlightenment progressives who understand that that's all kind of silly and that uh, we're, we're, we're working our way through this and l- with a little more rationality we'll be able to pull it off and so on. And they're both dead wrong. They could use they could use each other a little bit to correct their error, uh, but both of them are missing the uh, what's really happening. One could argue that uh, that the Coscas of the world are a little bit closer to the truth than the Cicero. But then you have this wonderful stage direction. You see, this is where stage directions in Shakespeare sometimes are fabulous. Exit Cicero, enter Cassius. Now, you see, Casca's very, he's agitated. He's agitated. And Cicero calms the agitation. Cicero's voice would say, well, wait a minute. We, we should think about this. We should, we should investigate this. Just don't go off half-cocked here, Casca. And then he leaves, and Cassius comes in. Now, give Cassius an agitated person, and he knows exactly what to do with it. He says, I won't read the thing, but he says, I'll... I'll, I'll tell you the true cause of all of this. So I'll, I'll, he doesn't say. He said, I think we can get at the true cause. Is there a man that's like these signs that you know of? And he seduces Casca uh, to finally say, Tis Caesar that you mean, is it not Cassius? And Cassius says, those that with haste will make a mighty fire, begin it with weak straw. Now this is funny. He's talking to Casca, who is the weak straw in, the, in this piece right now. Um, those that with haste will make a mighty fire, begin it with weak straw. What trash is Rome, what rubbish, what offal, when it serves for the base matter to illuminate so vile a thing as Caesar. 
Now, he would never have told Brutus that Caesar was vile. Brutus is too lofty for that. Uh, but he can tell somebody like Casca that Caesar is vile. But then he becomes coy. But, oh, grief, where hast thou led me? He says to his, the person he's seducing, where have you led me? Oh, I've gotten carried away. I perhaps speak this before a willing bondman. In other words, I'm perhaps speaking this to a Caesar loyalist. And Casca says, you speak to Casca and to such a man that is no fleering telltale. Hold my hand, be factious for redress of all these griefs. And I will set this foot of mine as far as thou goest farthest. Hold my hand, be factious. There you have uh, the, in the ultimately reduced form, the solidarity and the uh, rivalry. It's the solidarity that comes from the in-group that needs the out-group in order to achieve its solidarity. Hold my hand, be factious. Hold my hand, be factious. Now, it's easy to mistake that for for real cultural uh, consensus. Hey, we're doing fine. We're all agreeing finally. But it's only because we've become a faction. Hold my hand, be factious. And then he says, I'll set this foot of mine as far as you go farthest. All Casca needs is a leader. All he needs is somebody to tell him what to do. And that relieves him. You see, that eliminates the need for him to be convinced in a way. Because if he can be convinced that this leader knows more than he does, then he can simply take order and participate in the sacrificial uh, episode with moral impunity. Cena, who will be one of the conspirators, comes on stage and says, we better be getting Brutus into this conspiracy. They all agree that they have to get Brutus into the conspiracy to give it moral legitimacy, and Casca puts words to that. He says, he sits high in all the people's hearts, and that which would appear offense in us, his countenance, like richest alchemy, will change to virtue and to worthiness. He's the one that will allow us to uh, convince the people that what has happened is legitimate and not a, uh, not a murder. But notice, the reason we need Brutus is because when all the dust settled, the ultimate question will be, how do people interpret what we did? 